0: in prayer as we continue looking at the five souls of the Reformation. Heavenly Father we come before you as a people who have inherited the consequences of our forefather Adam and were so desperately in need of a Saviour. Lord we thank you that in Christ you have done what we were totally unable to do by any of our best human works. Lord, as we consider the the truths of and the implications of Christ alone this morning, may you use your word to bring salvation if there be any who do not know you as their saviour, or use it to restore and affirm those who are already yours. Lord, I pray for the work of your Spirit both through me and in every single one of us to hear your voice, to hear uh, the wonderful truths of Christ alone and what that means to us and how we relate to you. So change us uh, in light of these truths because no truths are designed just to be known. Uh, but that they might change our way in which we respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine this. It's okay, you don't need to go close your eyes and hold hands and do any imagining sort of stuff. Imagine you got captured, and the people who captured you, they changed your name. They were also gifted plastic surgeons, and they completely changed your appearance. Ten years later, you, you are released. You go back to your family and they refuse to believe that you are who you say you are. And you think, no worries, I've got this covered. I'm going to go back and tell them about all these particular things we did as a family that only as an insider of that family would you know that these things exist. But no matter how hard you try, because you look so dramatically different they will not believe that you are who you say you are. Every effort you make never will achieve that desired outcome that your family will recognise that you are who you truly are. But you know what? Despite all the change of name, change of looks, there is one hope. Despite the way your name is, despite the way you appear, your DNA remains unchanged. Everything you do could do nothing to convince your family of who you are. You had to depend on something outside of your control which was able to do everything. Now that might seem like a really, really weird sermon introduction. And you might think, what sort of weirdo holiday has Steve had? He comes back and the first thing he says, and basically imagine you've been abducted and someone's performing surgery on you. And while I when first came to mind, I tried to think of a better one. It was the only one I could come up with. But the point that makes this very applicable to what we're looking at today. When it comes to our salvation, our works, our every effort are Nothing. We are completely and totally dependent upon the works of someone else in order to enter into our salvation. Our works are nothing. His works are everything. Today is the third in our series of the five solas of the Reformation. I don't care the least about the Latin terms. Solus Christus, you don't need to remember that. simply means Christ alone. And each of these five things are the five key things that the reformers raise as an issues that needed to be reformed in the life of the church to bring the people back to the original teachings of the Bibles that had been lost. And as they declared these five things stand alone, it was to say that these five things in and of themselves are sufficient, they do not need to be added to, they do not need to be taken away from. Over the years, from the beginnings of the church, the Roman church had added to the Bible teaching or taken away in each of these areas. And beginning with Luther and others, the goal of the Reformation wasn't to bring in a new teaching in the 16th century, but to bring them back to the Bible, to bring them back to the truths that were there right from the very beginning. Today as we're looking at Christ alone, there are two aspects of that. Christ alone is the, He stands alone. He is unique. There is no other like Him. But secondly and more importantly, there is salvation by no other means other than Jesus Christ alone. But every single one of these, and the reason why these particular five were pinpointed, was because of the historical context. There was a reason why these had to be emphasised. As Samuel spoke about scripture alone, the reason why that became a particular emphasis was at that time in history, the church believed that the authority, the rules by which we live by, was scripture plus the traditions of the church, plus whatever the Pope decided to teach. And it's an interesting point that some of the things that the reformers challenged them on and said, these things are not in the scripture. Martin Luther posted that thing on the door in 1517. It wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1550s that the books that we call the Apocrypha, that is the books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in ours, were not counted as scripture even by the Roman church until the 1550s. Samuel looked at last week, glory to God alone, written into a setting in which glory was being both ascribed to God and also the church as an organisation. Today as we look at Christ alone, at the time in history in which the reformers were writing, people had moved away from the idea of the work of Christ alone being sufficient for salvation. They had added other things in addition that were requirements in order to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. But not only is this a matter of correct doctrine, I hope as we look at these things this morning, we will see how much these deep truths bring joy to the soul. We're going to look at, basically under two headings, there is no other like Christ, Secondly, there's no other means of salvation but Christ. And as we wrap it up, we'll look at why Christ alone is good news for us today. But firstly, there is no other like Christ. There's an abundance of things that make Christ very much other than anyone or anything else. We're told in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 that he created all things. Every single thing which is created, which means every single thing other than God himself, Jesus Christ created. We're told in Colossians, not only were they created by him, but they are created for him. Therefore, if Christ is the creator of all created things, that uniquely sets him apart as being the one who is the owner and the rightful ruler of all things. He's also the second person of the triune Godhood. The Trinity, the, the, there is one God expressed in three persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Meaning that every single thing that God is, Christ is. The writer of the Hebrews describes him in this way He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, Colossians 1:19 says, "In him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell." Jesus is so set apart from everything because he is the creator of all things. He is by very nature God himself. And therefore he is infinite in every single one of his attributes completely without limit in every single thing in his nature. Even Satan, in all the power in which he has, is limited in every single one of his attributes. Jesus is the invisible God made visible, Paul says in Colossians 1.15. But even more so than that, in pretty much every popular religion, Their idea of God is one who is distant, one who is not personally involved or caring towards his people, but rather angry towards the people who must be satisfied by human actions. But in Jesus Christ, we see the God who created us, who cares for the estate of his people, who who entered into the world in God the Son, in Jesus Christ, to die and suffer to secure the salvation of his created people. In Christ alone, in his incarnation, has there been anybody who is both fully God and fully man? In other words, outside of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is no remotely close peer or equal to Christ. Christ declared himself to be the centre of all of the scriptures in John 5.39 and Luke 24. Allow me just to give you some of a list of the ways in which he is exclusively different and other and completely God. Incidentally, for those who are doing the school of preachers were reminded that I said that in your sermons never rely upon anything else. There were supposed to be notes, but they're Um, Things up on the screen, they're not here so we're not relying on them So that's why they're not there They were created, they disappeared somehow Jesus created all things He demonstrated authority over all creation We see that in Mark chapter 4 as he calms the storm and the sea He accepted the profession of Thomas who says My Lord and my God Without any sense of rebuke he received worship. And note it's noteworthy that when Peter, when people bow down before Peter, he said, Do not bow down and worship, we are just men. Even when John saw and had an interaction with an angel in the Book of Revelation, he says, The angel says, Do not worship me, worship God alone. Jesus is the recipient of prayer in John fourteen fourteen and Acts seven fifty nine. He forgives sin in Matthew nine and John seven forty eight. He shares and sits on the throne of God, Revelation 3.21. He raises himself from the dead in John 10.18 when he says, I lay down my life and I take it back up again. He's declared to be above all rule and authority, Ephesians 1.21 and Colossians 2.10. And he will return and every knee will bow and confess he is Lord, Philippians 2.10 and 11. And that's not even a complete list. Jesus Christ is uniquely different and other. He stands alone there's no one remotely like him but when we're talking about Christ alone the major emphasis is is not upon his nature being different however what it is truly about is related to his nature because of his nature because of who he is makes him the one who exclusively can save So we look at the second and the the key point Salvation by no other means Other than Jesus Christ Now I need to be careful when I say Saved by Christ alone I need to be careful how I clarify that term Because even the church at the time of the reformers Would have made that statement That we are saved by Christ alone But when I say that we are saved by Christ alone I don't just mean that that he is the saviour Which he is the saviour He's not only the saviour, he is the means by which we enter into that salvation. In other words, he is both the giver of salvation and he is the means of salvation. In the 16th century, when the reformers came along, the church was not proclaiming that Jesus was the only means by which we enter into salvation. They said you must participate in the mass in order to enter into salvation. You could purchase indulgences. Now, if you're not familiar with historical things, you think purchase indulgences, like when you get peckish on a Saturday night, and you go down to 7-Eleven, you buy some magnums. The idea of indulgences was this. There was this idea that you needed to earn a certain amount of merits to be able to earn your way into heaven. And they had this thing called, what they called the treasury of merits, that was the the excessive good works of saints who have gone before who who had merits above and beyond what they needed to get into heaven. It was like their surplus. And for paying it a fee, you could receive a certificate to, to buy some of their merits credited to either your account or to the account of somebody else that you knew, whether they were living or dead, to somehow buy them into heaven. Now, later on, even the Roman Church um, abolished the idea of being able to pay for such a thing. However, indulgences still exist in in the Catholic Church today. But that's not the way we'd probably see things happening today when people say, Jesus Christ says, plus you've got to do this and this. What are some of the things we might see today? People might say, okay, the works of Jesus Christ is death and resurrection, plus baptism, maybe. Or if you're in certain Pentecostal churches, they might say, Jesus Christ is death and resurrection and if you speak in tongues. Now that's probably not a good comparison to compare something like indulgences to baptism, to compare something which is unbiblical as opposed to baptism which is spoken of and commanded of in the scriptures. At which point there is a healthy reminder that this is one of the things that we are to do in obedience as a saved people. If you're someone who has into a relationship with Jesus Christ who has not yet been baptised uh, and you would like to be, then please come chat to myself, Samuel or Ray at some point as well. These things are naturally obedience. These are things that are expected of people who are saved. Any act of obedience is never something that makes you saved nor keeps you saved. They are merely fitting responses of a saved people. The only thing we need to be saved to achieve that salvation is Jesus' death and his resurrection. When we add Jesus plus anything, we actually take away from Christ alone. When we say, Jesus works plus something I do, we not only take away from Christ, we proclaim that his death and resurrection is insufficient. Not only do we proclaim that his death and resurrection is insufficient when we say it must be the work of Christ plus something else, we proclaim that God is not all-powerful to save himself. Now, at this point in time, someone's going to say, well, what about faith, even when we go through the, the five things of the reformation we're going to get speak about faith alone where does that fit in a quick read through romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 18 and we'll make it abundantly clear we cannot even generate faith on our own it says no one seeks after god no not one faith has to be given as a gift That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless you are born again from above the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not even see the goodness of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 6.44, nobody will come to me unless the Father draws me. It's not in our natural state as dead in our transgressions and sin to exercise faith. Or as B.B. Warfield explains it, The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Saviour on whom it rests. Where others have described it, faith is merely the empty hand that takes hold of the wonderful, gracious gift in the works of Jesus Christ. We have said it that we are saved by the work of Christ alone. But what is it about who He is and what He has done? That it exclusively saves Let's have a look at Romans 5 18-19 Paul writes Therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation Of all men So one act of righteousness leads to Justification in life for all men For as by the one man's Disobedience the many were made sinners So by the one man's Obedience the many will be Made righteous Now for those who Last year when we looked at the Glenn Scrivener's 321 gospel presentation I really like the family tree analogy thing that he used He says that you know, the people who we are related to Who have gone before us without any control of our own What they have done in their past Directly affects us and defines who we are Say so for example, none of us had a choice about where we were born some of us may have personal physical traits that you can see you came from your parents that you wish you didn't inherit from your parents. But just by nature of being descended from people, we inherit a family history, we inherit traits, and we have a common inheritance. And from a biblical point of view, all of us are descended from Adam, the first human being. And so, as a result of our descendancy from him, we inherit a family history, a family history of a people who were created to be in relationship with God, enjoyed his presence, but who by their rebellion were placed outside of his direct presence and under his curse. We've inherited the traits of our forefather Adam, that we are by nature selfish. We are by nature wanting to rule our own lives. We don't want God any part of it. And we have a common inheritance, an inheritance of death that is the true nature and the the wages of sin. That's what Paul speaks about when he says, through one man, Adam, condemnation came to all. Common inheritance, passed through to all. But the Bible also speaks of Jesus as a second Adam. The one of Romans 5, despite this, another man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the good news of the gospel that we can be in Christ. We are given by no longer just a relationship with Adam, by now being related to Christ, we received a new family. When the consequences of the first is undone. We receive a new nature, new traits, as Christ works in us to make us more like his son. And we have a new inheritance. Jesus Christ himself in an eternity with him. All of this because the God whom we sinned against entered into our world, stood in our place, died our death on our behalf. Now, God just can't overlook sin. God would neither be good nor just if he just thought, ah, cute little Steve, I'll just let him go, it doesn't really matter. God is good, God is just, sin must be punished. And it was. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, had to be fully God to be a, a satisfactory representative on behalf of mankind. Had to be fully God in order for him to satisfy the the demands to be the one for the many. Took the punishment on our behalf. In this act he was what Paul calls both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. As in he was just in that the right punishment for sin, the wrath of, of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ, his justice was satisfied. But also by that action, as he took our death on our place, he is the justifier, the one who legally makes us right before God by faith in the work of Christ. And as God was the one whose sin was against, the one whom we have offended, he alone reserves the right to forgive sins. And because death was requ- required, only a perfect man could be that substitute. Or simply put, only Jesus, his death, his resurrection, can save. And we see this, remember, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's there in the garden and he's praying. We read this from Matthew 26, 38 and 39. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now Jesus cries out to his Father, if there be any other possible way, take this cup from me, this cup being the cup of God's wrath, if there's any other way, God, do it. And as Jesus hung on that cross that next day, we see God proclaims, there is no other way. Unlike under the Old Testament where there were sacrifices constantly repeated time and time again, Jesus was pictured and proclaimed to be the fulfillment and the final and perfect sacrifice. As we had read from Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 12, it said, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and cars, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what it says about Jesus' sacrifice? It was once for all, securing an eternal redemption. You can't get much more complete than that, can you? It is for all, for eternity. For all, I need to be very clear, all doesn't mean every single person. We're repeatedly told throughout the scriptures that, that we must take hold of that in faith, it doesn't just automatically be given to us. But all and forever. Peter says in very similar words, First Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Dealt with once for all. And because he alone is uniquely qualified to save, because he alone has done the act that is uniquely capable of saving. This is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. Now that's not a popular claim in these in today's world, is it? When people say, when people say there is only one way to God, people think that's really unloving to, to say that, that your way is the only way. But the truth is, If Jesus' claim is true, and it is, the most unloving thing we could do would be to give the people the impression that you can find some other way. You often hear people say this, that all religions are all taking their different paths, all heading to the same place. No, they don't. The majority of all religions make exclusive claims that they alone are the way to God. You can't have competing exclusive claims all saying we're exclusive, we're exclusive and then somehow come to the conclusion they're all going to the same place. The only conclusion you can come from that is either they're all wrong or one of them's right. But you can't have every single one of them being true. Often this point is illustrated in this way. Imagine you go to a mountain and there's lots of little hiking tracks around the bottom. From the bottom, if there's no signage, how do you know which one of these hiking tracks actually leads you to the top of the mountain? The answer is you you can't tell from the bottom. You can't see. The only way you can tell which tracks lead from the bottom up to the top is when you are at the top of the mountain. And Jesus is the other one who makes that exclusive claim, I have come from the Father. The one who has come from the Father, the only one who is qualified to say who, what is the one and only way to God has declared he is the only way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. He's the only one qualified to say how to get to God and he's the only one qualified to provide the way to God. His salvation is complete, 100% sufficient to add anything to his work is to take it away and render it insufficient and to doubt the ability of God to secure our salvation on his own. As Paul writes to the, the Galatians, he points out something of the uselessness of human works. In Galatians 2.21, say that, directly after Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but oh, Memory's gone. Nevertheless I live, I. Oh. Mine's gone blank. You should never put The Life I live in the flesh I live with faith in the Son of God, who loved me and He gave Himself for me. And then verse twenty one says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It says, If my works could do anything to get me right with God, Jesus died death was a waste of time. It was needless, unnecessary. And just a few chapters later, Paul says, um, speaking to a church where he was kind of like, okay, now you're Christian, you're also, they're saying now you need to also be circumcised in order uh, to be a true Christian. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that everyone who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So what Paul says to him, he says, if you think you're going to add to what Christ has done by adding circumcision, it doesn't say what Christ has done will be worthless to you. It says it will be of no use to you at all. It says you want to go back to a working your salvation by your works. It says sure, put yourself under the law. The standard is you've got to keep it 100%. Nobody can. Good luck to you. He wasn't quite that nasty. That was just me to put it that way. As we consider Christ alone, this is not just about having right beliefs. This is really, really good news. It's good news to a people who don't know Jesus and it's good news to a people who do know Jesus. Now I've had many discussions with people from other religions who, who in their religious thoughts you have to do particular things in order to win God's approval. And also discussions with people in um, Christian cultish groups who may have the works of Christ plus other things they need to do. And one thing's in common with every single one of these conversations, and I say, "Are you confident that you will go to be with God?" Every single time, the answer is along the lines of, "How can we be sure? How can I know I've done enough? I just hope I have." Because whenever you're depending on a salvation that's dependent upon something you've done, you'll always be stressed, have I done enough? But what we have seen this morning, Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to save once for all. And he said this before some of these concepts even existed that people were debating about. Let me dwell on that word all for a moment. It's one of my two favourite words in the Bible. I've said this many times. My two favourite words in the Bible are all and but. And but in the sense like often when, when say for example, Ephesians 2 gives a picture of what our human nature and our condition was like, but Christ made us alive. But let's think about this all of Christ and his sacrifice once for all. I can guarantee in a room with this number of people in it, there will be people who are struggling massively with guilt for something they've done. And it will fall into one of these two camps. Either someone who has never come to trust in Christ because they presume because of what they have done that they are not good, they could never be saved. That was something certainly I came across a lot in the prison system as a chaplain to the prisons, just, <laughs> give the, give, just to give the context to anyone who, who hasn't been here very long. And secondly, it could be those who are Christian but who fear because of something they did before coming to Christ or even as a Christian, whether that somehow that disqualifies them from the salvation of Jesus Christ. I want to come back to that family tree analogy. The idea that, that we have a family history we inherit, we inherit traits, we, we have a, a common inheritance. We're reminded that through Adam we have a family history that we were created to be in relationship with God that was broken when Adam and Eve basically decided they were going to make their own decisions. They were going to be their own ruler. They wanted to do their own thing. And that relationship with God was broken. We've inherited those traits that we naturally want to be our own God. We are selfish. We just want to push ahead, get whatever we want at anyone else's expense. And we've inherited that's... That common inheritance of death. You want to know something? The worst thing you have ever done or even thought about is neither a shock to me nor a shock to God. We've seen this is outside of our control. This is what we've inherited. This is our nature inherited through our forefather Adam. It's not surprising that we do evil, wicked stuff that's offensive to God doesn't shock him, it doesn't shock me. I did some terrible things before I came to know Christ. Things that would probably shock a lot of you. I'm not going to list them. Things I couldn't forgive myself for. But you know what I did? That guilt that I had before God, I brought that to the one who says, I have suffered for sins once for all. Because I understood that once for all was once... For all. It drew me to the one who is the saviour. Now if that's you today. That thought I'm too bad, too evil that I could ever enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You can cry to God for his forgiveness. And you know what? You can give thanks that he died for that, whatever that is that you are holding massive guilt onto. The Apostle John says in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And in Christ you are given a new identity. His forgiveness. His forgiveness. His traits and His inheritance. There's an expression the Bible uses that speaks about our relationship with Jesus. It speaks about us being in Christ. That's how close we are in our relationship if we have come to a saving knowledge of Him. We are in Christ. Which turns to scenario two from that uh, previous two possibilities. What about someone who's a Christian? But still as a Christian is struggling about something they either did before they were Christian or something they've done as a Christian. Living in fear whether or not they have somehow undone the saving work of Jesus Christ. I've done things as a Christian I'm ashamed of. I've done things as a Christian you'd be ashamed of if you knew that I'd done them. Remember what that phrase was that Paul and the New Testament writers often used to speak of our relationship with Christ? It says, you are in Christ. Why do I emphasize that? Because Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, not less, there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation Not now, not ever, not future. You want to know what? The one whom your sins were an offence against is the one who entered into the world knowing you would do those things and died a death to satisfactorily do with them once for all. We do not need to hold on to guilt for our past actions. It crippled me for years. It doesn't need to cripple us. He has done that once for all It doesn't mean it's not right to feel remorse when we do something wrong Of course we should We, we acknowledge how worthy he is of our praise But don't allow that guilt to leave be the place where you stay Leave that guilt to be the place that leads you to The one who has paid the price in full Come to him, give him thanks That he has paid that price And give him thanks in prayer and say Your death was sufficient for what I just did In a moment I'm going to close in prayer but I'm just going to actually uh, just leave it open for a time of quiet prayer where you are now. If something of this has been convicting you or there's some things you want to bring before God in prayer I'll just leave you um, some time to bring that before him now in prayer and then I'll close this off. Lord, you are worthy of all honour and praise. It's a truth. It's easy to say. It's so often we can't understand how we can believe those truths and live so contrary to them at times. Particularly when we know the price that you paid for our salvation, it's hard to believe that at times we could return to the very things that you died for. But we do. Even the Apostle Paul spoke about the struggle that he had to do the things that, that he should do and uh, how he was doing the things that he shouldn't do. Lord, we so look forward to a time when we'll see you face to face we will no longer have this ongoing struggle with sin. But while we do still continue to have that struggle, we give you Thanks. That your work on the Christ was sufficient once and for all. That you did not place limitations. It wasn't, I have died for these sins except for this one or this one. Lord, we thank you and we we appeal to you in all of our brokenness. And we thank you that uh, for even the darkest moment that we have had or that we will have, your death and resurrection were sufficient for us. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.